Welcome to The Potter Scholar. I am your host, Natasha Burge, and together we will be taking a scholarly approach to the Harry Potter books. I have a PhD in creative writing and spent many years in academia studying literature, and here we will explore various aspects of the books to celebrate the magic they have given us. And if you want to know more about The Potter Scholar or support the podcast, please check out the link to my Patreon in the episode description. Wands out! Welcome to the first episode of The Potter Scholar. Thank you so much for being here. In this episode, I'm going to give you a brief introduction as to who I am and why the Potter series means so much to me, and to give a preview of the kinds of episodes you'll find on this podcast and how we're going to frame our scholarly approach to the series, and also explain why it is that I think that fantasy is so worthy of scholarly study. Today, the day this first episode is launching out into the world, is September 1st, a day that any Potter fan will immediately recognize. This is the day that we head to King's Cross Station, our luggage and owl in hand, and pass through platform nine and three quarters to board the gleaming Hogwarts Express for our journey back to Hogwarts. The first book in the series, Philosopher's Stone, came out 25 years ago. What is it about this world that we can't get enough of? My answer to this question is one that we will explore from many perspectives throughout the entirety of this podcast, but ultimately, ultimately, I think it is because the best fantasy literature, which Harry Potter can undoubtedly count itself among, it answers a deep human need, a need for truth and beauty, goodness and transcendence, a need to reorient our way of seeing the world around us. All of the things we may find it hard to recognize in our daily life, we can find in abundance in fantasy literature. Fantasy literature, I argue, shows us worlds of ontological fullness. What I mean by that is it takes readers into worlds where things have the full weight of meaning that we know they should. It was actually a desire to explore why it is that fantasy literature has so much to offer us in this day and age that sparked the idea of this podcast in the first place. Which brings us to my background as a writer, reader, and scholar. Growing up, I lived more in books than in real life. I was never without a book. And I mean this seriously. I read books under my desk when I was supposed to be paying attention in class, Breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the table. I had a book in hand. Every car ride on the school bus, it was always with me. Books were always with me. Fantasy and science fiction were always my favorite. And I read the Harry Potter books when they very first came out, when I was in high school, and absolutely loved them. I eventually went on to study writing and literature in school, earning a master's degree and then a PhD. I wanted to go into graduate school, actually, as a writer of fantasy and sci-fi. I knew that wasn't what we would be studying, but I wanted to do it anyway. So what we had to do in grad school, we would collect our short stories or um, excerpts from novels we were working on, and we would compile them into portfolios, and then we would submit them throughout the year to get feedback from professors and from our classmates. I remember for my first portfolio, I submitted short stories that were nothing but fantasy. And I will never forget 
in the margin of the papers that I got back from my professor, it wasn't even just the professor, it was actually the director of the program. In the feedback she gave, she wrote on the side of the paper that she wasn't sure if fantasy was the best use of my writing talents. So this kind of genre snobbery is very, very old. Um, Authors have been having to deal with it for generations. J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, who were pivotal figures in the formation of what we think of today as the contemporary fantasy genre, they had to deal with it when they were writing The Lord of the Rings and The Chronicles of Narnia. This snobbery was actually, in fact, one of the things they set about to challenge with their work. And it is changing, Now you can find classes on Harry Potter and fantasy in universities. You can find scholarly papers, many scholarly papers on fantasy and Harry Potter. But it is still quite a common attitude in academia that fantasy, and especially children's fantasy, it isn't quite real literature. Chastened by my program director's words, I decided to try my hand at proper literary fiction, and this is, a, this is writing that privileges style over substance often. Plot, characters, things like that are secondary. Style is really what matters. In the PhD program that followed, I continued in this vein, and I had a wonderful experience in graduate school and doing my PhD. I really do enjoy this kind of writing, but ultimately, when I finished these programs, I was left with a curious sensation. The best way I could find to articulate it was that I had spent years feeding my mind while neglecting my heart, and my heart was ravenous. I didn't have to think, even for a moment, about what it was that my heart wanted to read. It was fantasy. I wanted dragons and myth and ancient prophecy and strange new worlds where everything made perfect sense. I wanted to travel to lands where immutable truths were evident and abundant. But want is a word that is too light, too flippant for the way this felt. This felt like a need, almost like homesickness. It was a sharp, profound desire to return to a much-loved place. Of all the fantasy books on my shelves, I knew from the beginning where I wanted to go. I wanted to re-experience the chilling threat of the basilisk, to order chocolate frogs on the Hogwarts Express, to courageously face down a swarm of Dementors, to tramp through the snow on the way to Hogsmeade, and spend rainy evenings next to the crackling fire of the Gryffindor common room. So I picked up the Philosopher's Stone and dove in, and the experience was like coming home. It was everything I could have hoped for. And what struck me most of all was this overwhelming sense of meaning All of a sudden, what I was reading felt like it mattered. And I wondered why was fantasy literature, the thing that was objectively the most unreal, the farthest away from reality, we're we're talking dragons and unicorns, why did it feel the most real? I decided I wanted to dig into its roots and approach it from a scholarly point of view to answer this question of why. And one of the first things to understand when answering this question is that the roots of fantasy can be traced back to mythology. Every culture around the world has their own mythic stories, stories filled with magic and fantastic beasts and the supernatural. Myth and proto-fantasy storytelling is one of the oldest art forms known to humanity. 
There is the grand mythology that spoke of the deeds of gods, but there is then also the more humble fairy stories and folk tales that told of daring deeds done by mere mortals. These stories were told for adults and children alike, and they let listeners empathetically voyage with their heroes to learn about life's deep values, about facing fear, having courage, being loyal to one's friends, outsmarting one's enemies, and communicating with the more-than-human world around you. These stories swirled organically across communities and landscapes, swapped around crackling fires at night. They were the lifeblood of humanity's imagination. For much of our history as a species, we lived in a world that was saturated by a mythic understanding of reality. The world around us tingled with deep meaning. It is only recently in the modern age when this has changed. Now we are largely taught to see the world primarily in a materialist, rationalist way in which the only things that matter are those things that can be quantified. All other ways of knowing and making meaning are subordinated or considered irrelevant. But amidst this parched desert, we still have stories. And those ancient myths that were the lifeblood of humanity's imagination over the years grew into epic poems and folk tales and medieval chivalric romances and eventually what we know today as the genre of fantasy. Historian and philosopher Mircea Eliade argued that in a secular society, when traditional avenues of seeking the numinous have been foregone, that literature can be a transcendent experience. What that means is that through literature, we can temporarily escape our inordinately self-focused, materialist daily life and submerge ourselves in worlds of greater meaning. Fantasy literature in particular, I argue, shows us worlds of ontological fullness. It takes readers into, into worlds where things have the full weight of meaning that we know they should. We'll be talking about this throughout the Potter Scholar podcast. But for now, I want to talk about how the Potter Scholar will approach the Potter series. The genius of Rowling is that She's doing multiple things. Her story is working on multiple levels. So this series really rewards a rich look. The books we love can withstand our scholarly scrutiny. In fact, it's the most rewarding way often to experience them. The first seven seasons, we will have one season devoted to each book. After that, we'll approach things a little bit differently. But for now, to start with, we will analyze the seven books sequentially. There will be a few different kinds of episodes on the Potter Scholar. There will be two main kinds of episodes, which I'll discuss below, plus some occasional fun, silly, lighthearted bonus episodes. There will be sequential rereads, and then there will also be standalone episodes. The standalone episodes will include deep dives into various topics, such as the neuroscience of storytelling, the uses and importance of fantasy fiction in contemporary life, whether or not J.K. Rowling should be considered a modern-day inkling, the medieval worldview and why it features so prominently in fantasy literature, Voldemort and the mindset of the machine, and much more. In the sequential reread episodes, we are not going to go chapter by chapter, but I've divided the books into the stage, into their stages of the mythic hero's journey. So in these episodes, we'll be using three different lenses to explore the deeper meanings in the books. We'll use literary alchemy, chiastic story structure, and the mythic hero's journey. 
I believe that Rowling used all three when writing Harry Potter, and I think they all add tremendous insight into understanding the books. These story structures can be thought of as something that is everywhere present, but nowhere explicit. They are a deeply hidden element that you, you don't have to know about them to appreciate the books, but once you do know about them, it makes it clear, I think, why the books resound so profoundly. So literary alchemy, I'll give you a little um, snapshot of what each of these things are. Literary alchemy. We all know alchemy as a medieval proto-science in which people attempted to turn base metals like lead into gold and use a philosopher's stone to make an elixir of immortality. However, many argue there was a deeper alchemical path, that of perfecting the human soul. In literature, playwrights and authors over the centuries have woven the alchemical stages of perfecting the soul into their works to explore the transformation of their characters and the reader along with them. So we can think of alchemical themes in literature as shorthand for personal, moral, and spiritual transformation. I'll also be analyzing the book's chiastic structure, or ring structure. Chiasmus is an ancient story structure, thousands of years old, where the beginning and the ending of a story meet, and where chapters echo across the ring. Across the Potter series, you can think of it as the themes and images and deeper meanings in books one and seven echo each other, books two and six, books three and five, with book four acting as a central point around which these echoes pivot and reverberate. The same can be said for each book individually, with beginning and end echoing one another and the middle point of the plot serving as a pivot point. These echoes reinforce important themes and story elements in ways that allow meaning to develop and intensify. We know Rowling spent five years planning the plot structure and details of the entire series before finishing writing the first book. So I think it is entirely plausible that she was working at this level of depth. And that brings us to the hero's journey. Mythologist Joseph Campbell observed a common pattern in myths found across cultures and throughout history, and he termed it the monomyth, which tells the hero's journey. In this story structure, a hero proceeds along a path marked by consistent and predictable stages. To put it simply, the hero leaves the everyday world behind, ventures into the hazardous unknown where he faces great challenges, and ultimately emerges victorious, returning to the mundane world deeply transformed. If you pay attention to all kinds of media, not just fantasy literature, you will recognize the hero's journey and its archetypes being played out in television programs and Hollywood blockbusters across all genres. The beats of this story structure they are fluid and they can change, but generally it is separation from the known world, initiation and return. And within these three phases, there are several points along the way, which are, which like I said, are somewhat fluid, but generally the call to adventure, threshold, trials and temptation, abyss of death and rebirth, transformation and return. It is these stages that I'll be using to break down the Potter books and look at each stage more deeply. It's important at this point to offer um, a caveat when discussing the hero's journey. It isn't, it isn't actually universal. There are a vast number of mythic structures used around the world. This is not the only one, and this trajectory isn't used by all cultures. But I think Rowling 
clearly used this when writing Potter, so I do think it is a useful lens through which to study the series. By following this ancient mythic path, the Potter books strike chords that live inexplicably deeply within each of us. When these chords are struck by the familiar story beats and narrative arcs, they ring out in ways that are unspeakably profound. We are familiar with them, but we never tire of them. Our minds actually yearn for this kind of ritual recognition. It is not formulaic, it is mythic. So to conclude the very first episode of The Potter Scholar, ultimately, I believe that fantasy literature is one of the most powerful ways we have of facing life's biggest questions. I contend that fantasy literature can teach us how we can best be in this world. I believe that we need something that connects us to the transcendent, something that opens our eyes to the possibility of wonder and awe. Fantasy literature can be a powerful part of that connection. I'm really looking forward to diving deeper into the rich world of Harry Potter and the literary techniques and philosophies and big ideas that live between its pages. And I hope you will join me on this scholarly journey. Thank you for listening. And until next time, happy reading. And if you want to know more about The Potter Scholar or support the podcast, please check out the link to my Patreon in the episode description.